Where else can you board a mine train that will take you into the vast living desert and then head into splendid rainbow caverns to see a dazzling spectacle of colorful, glowing waterfalls? Why, Disneyland, of course, but not the Disneyland of today. No, this element of Disneyland's past heralds back to the heyday of the park. As one of the earliest elements in Frontierland, this attraction once took guests into the wilds of the frontier giving them an otherworldly escape that only Disney could provide. It's time to hop aboard the Rainbow Caverns Mine Train as we head into the hidden history within Discoveryland. Howdy, folks. Your attention, please. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, to all who come to this happy place, welcome. Hello, and welcome to Discoveryland. My name is Victoria, and I will be your guide on this adventure through yesterday, tomorrow, and fantasy. In Season 2, we dedicated a full episode to Rainbow Caverns. Rainbow Caverns was the stunning finale to the Rainbow Caverns Mine Train, and then later on to the Mine Train Through Nature's Wonderland. Widely regarded by Disney legends and historians as one of the greatest accomplishments in Disneyland history, it only made sense that we thoroughly discuss the history and details behind this mysterious and legendary element of the Mine Train rides. But the fondly remembered Rainbow Caverns, with their stalactites and stalagmites, glowing waterfalls and streams, and ethereal musical soundtrack, were only one part of the attraction to which they belonged. Before this grand finale, guests were transported into the living desert, where they had another set of experiences, dusted with a bit of Disney magic. Walt Disney was a rail enthusiast. One of his most well-known passions was for trains. He had a lifelong affinity for them, and in fact, hoped as a young boy to one day become a train engineer. His father, Elias Disney, was for a time a railroad worker. His brother, Roy Disney, sold magazines and concessions aboard Santa Fe Railroad trains. His uncle, Mike Martin, was an operating engineer for Santa Fe. Famously, he constructed his very own train at his Carrollwood estate, the 1-8 scale Carrollwood Pacific Railroad. It was a rideable train that he let visitors to his home in Holmby Hills ride. And in a way, it was sort of an experiment for some of the things he would later bring to Disneyland. In 1965, Walt penned an article for Railroad magazine entitled, I Have Always Loved Trains. 
it gave a bit of insight into his interest in the railroad. I suppose I've always been in love with trains. As a small boy living on a farm near Marceline, Missouri, I had a unique claim to fame. My Uncle Mike was an engineer on the Santa Fe's accommodation train that ran between Marceline and Fort Madison. That was something to brag about to my schoolmates at a time when railroads loomed large in the scheme of things and steam engines were formidable and exciting. In 1917, when I was 15, my father sold the newspaper route, and that summer, I looked around for some way to earn money until high school reopened in the fall. My brother Roy, who had been employed by the Fred Harvey system as a news butcher on Santa Fe trains, selling magazines, peanuts, candy, apples, soft drinks, cigars, and so on, suggested that I apply for a similar job. I did so and was hired for two months. I felt very important wearing a neat blue serge uniform with brass buttons, a peaked cap, and a shiny badge on my lapel. As the train rolled into one station after another, I stood beside the conductor on the car steps to enjoy the envious stares of youngsters waiting on the platform. It was quite an adventure for a kid who hitherto had rarely been away from home. End quote. Walt goes on to discuss that the job was not all that he expected it to be, as he was taken advantage of by his suppliers. In the article, Walt continues, I quit at the end of the summer with losses that absorbed the $30 bond I had posted when I took the job. That ended my experience with trains, except as a passenger, until years later when I decided to build my own railroad. I knew another fellow living in Beverly Hills who had built a midget railroad, and I determined to build one of my own to keep my mind busy and off studio problems. Then Disneyland came along. I had the excitement of creating an honest-to-goodness railroad, well, 5 a scale anyway, the Disneyland and Santa Fe. What happened to the Carrollwood Pacific train? I still have it. I'm going to get it repainted and displayed in a glass case at the Disneyland and Santa Fe station. That's only right since it spawned the busy little railroad here in Disneyland and somehow is tied up emotionally with my boyhood experience as a news butcher. Yes, in one way or another, I have always loved trains. End quote. Of course, the Carrollwood Pacific Railroad uh, was never displayed at Disneyland. Ultimately, the barn that housed it is located in Griffith Park in Los Angeles, and the actual train can be seen at the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco, which, if you're a Walt Disney fan, is an absolute must to check out. When Disneyland opened on July 17, 1955, Frontierland was one of the highlights of the park. Westerns were highly popular throughout the decade, both on the big screen and on the small one. Disney's Davy Crockett series, starring Fess Parker, aired in five parts between 1954 and 1955 on ABC. It was part of the Disneyland series that Walt Disney had brokered with ABC to secure funding for Disneyland. Davy Crockett became a cultural phenomenon, and it propelled the importance of television as a medium. As such, when the park opened, boys and girls wanted to see Frontierland and relive the adventures of Davy Crockett. 
Fess Parker was even on hand on opening day. And on that day, the following attractions were ready to greet the first visitors to the park. Davy Crockett Frontier Museum. Davy Crockett Arcade. The Golden Horseshoe Saloon. Mark Twain Riverboat. Mark Twain Steamboat. Mule Pack. Conestoga Wagon. Stagecoach. Miniature Horse Corral. And Indian Village. Three of these attractions, the Mule Pack, Conestoga Wagon, and Stagecoach, each covered shared ground around the undeveloped backside of Frontierland. However, Walt longed for something grander that would tether the Frontierland experience with a unique ride, one that harkened back not only to the Old West, but also to his lifelong passion for trains. The frontier of Frontierland, if you will, would be redeveloped into the Living Desert and Rainbow Caverns, and the existing attractions that would surround it would now share their terrain with the Rainbow Caverns Mine Train. The Rainbow Caverns Mine Train opened on July 2nd, 1956, nearly a year after Disneyland's opening. The entry queue for the mine train was not far from where the entrance to Big Thunder Mountain Railroad is now. In close proximity to it were the queues to the Mule Pack, Conestoga Wagon, and Stagecoach. Eager guests waiting to board the mine train would enter the queue and then board in front of the little mining town of Rainbow Ridge. Rainbow Ridge consisted of scaled structures placed on the incline of a hill. The hill is said to have been constructed from the dirt dug up from the moat around Sleeping Beauty Castle during the park's construction. The Rainbow Ridge buildings represented a classic Wild West mining town, featuring the El Dorado Hotel, the Miner's Hardware Store, Rainbow Ridge Clarion, Opera House, General Store, the Palace Dance Hall, and numerous other scaled buildings that got smaller as he looked farther up the hill. Occasionally, stuntmen would stage shootouts around the buildings. As the dark green train rolled up on its tracks, guests would see the locomotive pulling a car for the conductor to sit and then up to seven passenger cars behind it. The conductor's role was to operate the train and narrate the scenery, at least when the pre-recorded narration was not being used. At the very back of the train, a brakeman was positioned. The train was capable of making whistling sounds, but it was not a steam locomotive like the Disneyland Railroad. Instead, it ran on electric batteries placed inside the conductor's car, which read Rainbow Mountain Mining and Exploration on its sides. The locomotive simply had the initials RMRR. As guests entered into their cars via small doorways, they sat along the sides of the cars facing each other. Once everyone was safely seated, the train was underway. After passing through a wooden tunnel, the train emerged on the other side in the desert. It then passed a stream on its left. Across the stream, riders could see the occasional stagecoach passing by. They then passed below Natural Arch Bridge, where trains of mule pack riders could be seen riding above. At this point, it was not advisable to blow the whistle as it had a tendency to scare the mules. 
The train then emerged into the living desert. The Living Desert was based in part on the Disney documentary series True Life Adventures. The Academy Award winning series covered nature in its various forms, and the first feature length entry was 1953's The Living Desert. It was here where writers came upon a saguaro cactus forest. Some of the cacti in this forest were most peculiar, taking on human like qualities. Was one of them trying to hitch a ride? Are those short seven cacti supposed to be mimicking Snow White's seven dwarfs? I suppose no Disney ride could be complete without some sort of an obligatory Easter egg. The trains then made an elliptical, passing by a switch that led off to a small cave where the trains could be serviced after hours. They wound around the devil's paint pots, bubbling in a variety of colors. The train then wound through a collection of rock structures, including buttes with pueblos atop them, natural arches, and peculiar balancing rocks that were spinning menacingly above the heads of passers-by. Could they fall at any moment? Hopefully not. And around the living desert, the interactivity of the other attractions, the mule pack, the Conestoga wagon, and the stagecoach, could be witnessed. Even the Disneyland Railroad passed by at times. This created an incredible kinetic energy that Disney was skilled at creating in its park in the early years. Upon leaving the desert, the train entered a darkened cave. It wound around for a few moments before emerging inside beautiful rainbow caverns. As we previously covered in last season's Rainbow Caverns episode, the numerous waterfalls, streams, and pools were accomplished by the genius of Disneyland Imagineer and legend Claude Coates. He had developed an innovative plumbing system that contained separate drain channels for each flow of color-dyed water. This kept the individual colors from mixing. The water was circulated through a pump and then continually recycled, minimizing splashing and maintaining the color integrity of each water flow. The water was then lit up via ultraviolet light, strategically placed throughout the caverns, giving the water a glowing effect. Stalagmites and stalactites lined the cave, and signs pointed to the various waterfalls throughout its depths. Rainbow Falls, Bridal Veil Falls, Staircase Falls, and Witch's Cauldron were just some of the water features that train riders would see throughout their journey. And through it all, the heavy splashing of continuously moving water could be heard amongst an ethereal George Bruns composed soundtrack featuring a theremin and a female choir. All of these elements culminated in an otherworldly and memorable experience. Upon exiting Rainbow Caverns, the train returned to the station so that guests could unload and continue their adventures in Frontierland. The Rainbow Caverns Mine Train created a unique theme park experience unlike any other, and it resonated highly with Disneyland guests. With its setting in Rainbow Ridge, followed by the voyage into the living desert, and then into Rainbow Caverns, it offered something new that Frontierland had been lacking on opening day. It also added to the kinetic energy in Frontierland, what with the other attractions that shared the ground upon which the mine train operated. 
This was quite similar to what Disney would do over a decade later when the new Tomorrowland of 1967 opened, as it had the People Mover, Monorail, Submarine Voyage, Skyway, and Rocket Jets all moving about in harmony. A world on the move. Of course, the Rainbow Cavern's mine train would not last forever. However, not all would be lost. In fact, this would turn out to be for the better when the attraction was significantly upgraded and transformed into the mine train through nature's wonderland. We will continue our discovery of the mine train and its tremendous overhaul in our next episode of Discoveryland. There's no place like Disneyland, and around every corner of the park is some hidden history waiting to be discovered. I hope you'll join me next time for another adventure into the vibrant history of the Magic Kingdom. I'd love to hear from you. You can write to Discoveryland by emailing discoverylandshow at yahoo.com or find us on Facebook and Instagram at discoverylandshow and on Twitter at discoverylandvc. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Disneyland has now ended its normal operating day. We hope you've enjoyed your visit to the Magic Kingdom and that you'll be back with us again soon.